Welcome to Shade with me, Lou Mensa. Shade speaks with artists and activists who challenge these stereotypes on race at a time when identity politics is at the forefront of our cultural landscapes. This week I speak with Dr. Lauren Michelle Jackson, who teaches in the departments of English and African American Studies at Northwestern University. Her first book, White Negroes, was published this month. White Negroes exposes the new generation of whiteness, which thrives at the expense and borrowed ingenuity of black culture and explores how this intensifies racial inequality. Lauren's book reveals why cultural appropriation, something that's become embedded in our daily lives, deserves serious attention. It's a blueprint for taking wealth and power and ultimately exacerbates the economic, political and social inequity that persists in America. White Negro summons a reinterrogation of Norman Mailer's infamous 1957 essay of the same title. So I was delighted to get some new equipment for the recording of this episode and of course something went wrong Um, so we had to start the interview all over again and Lauren was so patient and so gracious Um, so listen I just hope you enjoy it and let's just cross our fingers that everything with the sound goes well. That's never happened before. Well um, (laughs) I think it happens to like every every journalist and every podcaster so I guess this is your turn yeah we could take it from the top um so so Lauren what would you say um for the listeners who are not familiar with the issues of appropriation um is the difference between appreciation and appropriation um we've become accustomed to responding to what we see and yet at the same time perhaps unaccustomed to seeing the the real insidious ways in which it's truly affected our daily lives could you just talk a little bit about the differences for us well I think there is what I would call profound misunderstanding about appropriation in the sense that um I think now when people use the term appropriation there is already like this sort of built-in hostility and so we are used to seeing that word and hearing and hearing it applied to as you say the sort of insidious ways that culture can travel and circulate. And so we put it on this scale where um, appreciation is on one end and an appropriation is on the other, where appreciation is good and appropriation is bad. When really appreciation is in itself, of itself a, a form of appropriation. And so when I describe appropriation as a movement, what I'm saying is that the actual act of appropriation of taking one thing and making it um, appropriate to another circumstance is not it doesn't have like built in, you know, that hostility actually isn't inherently there. And so when we think about um, an an example I use in the book is hip hop culture and rap music, which is a genre and a movement, a culture that could not have existed without intergenerational appropriation, without cross-cultural appropriation, without interracial appropriation. Um, But we don't tend to think about it like that. When we talk about appropriation in terms of rap music, we're usually thinking of Um, the white rapper who is performing this traditionally thought of as black genre. And so um, I think the the real takeaway is that there isn't, it's not either appropriation or appreciation. Appreciation is just a kind of kinder, I guess we could say kinder word for someone who 
appropriates in a way that we find favorable. But but ultimately, a lot of appropriation is, you know, is done unknowingly. It's done unthinkingly. We appropriate otherwise, like you know, words and and fashion and things that sort of come into our come into our knowledge and coming to our style that we a lot of times don't think about where they come from. Um, and so that's no less appropriation than the person who maybe is a little bit more thoughtful as in um, deliberate about their appropriation of, of something else. But, but really, I think, you know, appreciation and appropriation are just two different words to really describe what is ultimately the same gesture. Mm-hmm. And there's a loose connection between the title with Norman Mailer's essay. I came across Mailer's essay, The White Negro, um, sometime in grad school, I believe, I can't recall exactly. And I think one of the things that first impressed me was that it's an infinitely stranger essay, I think, than the way the title gets um, invoked suggests. So the actual white Negro figure um, is only is only referred to once by that actual name. So you go into the essay expecting it to be um, some sort of, uh, you know, similar to a contemporary essay about appropriation. And actually, it's really about trying to diagnose a certain crises going on with a certain segment of white youth and trying to think about why it is that the the post-war hipster needs to revel in blackness and um mm-hmm. yeah it's an interesting essay it wasn't you know his in, in some ways when i was writing the proposal and submitting the proposal um the title initially began as just really sort of a shallow riff on that actual essay but if i was you know if i was going to invoke Miller, i did want to uh, engage with that essay in some way in the actual book, and so there is a chapter that I that I call the hipster, where I do think about what he's saying in that essay in in a contemporary context and connect it to the way that a lot of uh, hip lingo uh, circulates today. Mm-hmm. Um, and and as for the topic of appropriation, as it came to structure the book, um, it. It was. It wasn't. It was. It was never something that I thought I would go into as my beat or anything like that. It was more a matter of me doing a lot of writing for the internet and looking back and realize that, realizing that there was this trend in a curiosity for the way um, interracial aesthetics circulate and merge and um, are impressed upon each other particularly in an online space, particularly in an age of digital culture, um, where digital culture is is mass culture, is, you know, all culture is American culture. And, and that's really what I approach the book with a curiosity about. So not to, not to um, chastise anyone really, but really to approach it in the vein of a critic and think about how things happen and why things happen that you often don't get a whole lot of time to have curiosity about as a freelance writer. You talked about a French photographer, Jean-Paul Gould, um, who's known for his fetishization of uh, black women's bodies. He's even gone so far as to say that um, blacks are the premise of of my work. 
Well, you reference Kim's identity, um, in particular, um, her portrait that she had taken by Jean-Paul Gould. Um, and you said that it's Kim who at the moment stands as a one woman metaphor for America's twisted relationship with race. And I thought that image was particularly interesting um, with reference to, to that statement, because the image encapsulates so much of what you're talking about in your book. Could we just break it down a bit and, and look at what that image is saying within the context of appropriation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's there's a lot there's a lot going on here. Now, just to, so just to start in the wide view, I think, I mean, I go back and forth on how interesting I think Kim Kardashian actually is. Um, I, I was at, um, I had an event and someone asked me, they asked me a question about Kim Kardashian and Donald Trump, like what is the link between them? And um, I, I was being a little bit facetious and saying, you know, they, you know, thinking about their meeting as a, of the minds that they had last last year, I believe. But I really do think they both tell a story of America in in a really condensed way. The two of them, these two reality TV stars, you know, define so much of the past decade and a half, you could say. Um, but I think Kim is particularly interesting because I think her racial identity or assignment is so circumstantial um, in ways that we maybe used to talk about a little bit more, but don't talk about as much um, now in public because she's such a, a staple, I guess, in, in, in American royalty, right? Um, and so, but to, you know, so much has happened since this paper cover, but so rewinding back to it's November 2014 um, paper magazine she's their cover girl with their um, this sort of trending um, series that they do they called break the internet you know Kim Kardashian and so she's on the she's on the cover here in this um, really form-fitting like black sequin dress um, holding a popped bottle of champagne and it's sort of artfully foaming into this cup that's actually seated behind her because she's photographed in profile and it's seated on you know her butt in a way that obviously like draws attention to that area even more so than would otherwise be drawn there and what was interesting is that um the the pose and the photograph is like an almost exact replica for um, another photograph this um, photographer published in the 70s, um, which is called Carolina Beaumont, New York. Um, in that case, it was a black woman um, and she was nude and she was photographed in a way that um, I think he has a preoccupation with photographing black skin in a way that makes it look like almost like artificial or painted on. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was interesting because so here we have like a reappropriation of that photograph featuring Kim Kardashian, someone with um, interestingly ethnicized figures who has gradually over the years sort of um, effaced a lot of those features on her face while um, making certain alterations to her body and changes in fashion that um, sort of move her in the other direction. So it's like her face has gotten more anglicized and her body has gotten um, 
thick with two C's um, in all the right places in a way that's very suggestive of um, black aesthetics. And so like all that is being signified here in this photograph where she is, she is standing in for the black woman that um, Goad would otherwise be photographing, um, but it is in this way that is um, much more whimsical because she is, she's tan and she's against this brown background. And there's just like, um, I don't want to ramble, but there's just like a lot of, it's just like, there's a lot of like stuff going on here that we could read very closely that is also in some ways an allegory for just Kim period. And I didn't, I didn't get to write about um, a lot of this, some of this in the book because it happened um, after I submitted the manuscript, but it's also really interesting to think about uh, the Kardashian Jenner family and their proximity to blackness um, while Kanye is having this like really strange moment in his, in his career. And while Kim is off here um, like doing work on behalf of quote unquote prison reform and is saying she's going to, you know, get, take the bar and get her law degree and that this is her passion now. And it's just like this very, very strange trajectory for both of them that it's happening, happening contemporaneously. And I think from, you know, a racial reading or a racial perspective, there's just like, you know, I, I wrote about it in, in part of a chapter. I didn't even linger on the Kardashians that long, but like you could, you could go on for days thinking about it. And so that was um, part of my interest there. But, you know, I tried not to linger too long on the Kardashians, if only because I think there's so much that's been said there already. And, mm-hmm. and so I don't, you know, I don't know how much, how much is there left to say. Is- yeah. I was really interested in the fashion chapter. And one of the, one of the case studies that you used was the Mark Jacobs uh, spring summer 2017 show um, where his models um, wore fake dreadlocks um, and he he brought in a hairstylist um, particularly to make up these these wigs um, to great expense and what was interesting to me was when uh, you said that the the stylist was asked if um, Rastafarian culture was an inspiration for the looks and the response was no. And there was a lot of responses to, to that show and the looks in that show. But a year later, Jacobs did respond to the calls of appropriation by saying, um, what I learned from the whole thing was that maybe I don't have the language for this or maybe I've been insensitive because I operate so inside my little bubble of fashion. So it seemed like perhaps he was taking on board. Um, and again, this is not to focus perhaps on him as a person, but um, it's just maybe indicative from, of some of the exchanges that, that we have. But after him sort of gently acknowledging the cause of appropriation, a year later, um, his, his models wore turbans and head wraps down the runway. And I'm just thinking, where does this leave us with the conversations um, from the standpoint of getting the messages across you know it's like my concern which I'm sure is yours and so many people's as well is um, is the message getting across or actually is there a message coming from the other way you know from them like their responses um, to these calls Um, and if so I'm thinking you know what is it 
So I actually think Jacobs was saying something really precise and really smart, even Mm -hmm. if he maybe didn't know, even if he maybe didn't know what he was saying that was so smart when he says, um, you know, maybe I don't have a language for this um, because I operate inside my little bubble of fashion. And I think like that's really true. Um, I, you know, we forget that I think a lot of these people really do operate or think they're operating within these really, really insular, um, insular cultures and insular, uh, um, you know, areas of of fashion or or what have you. And he's saying, you know, being in this culture, in this little bubble of fashion has not afforded me the language to describe what's going on in culture because fashion particularly designer fashion, has a vested interest in not examining race or not thinking about race in a conscious way. And so when he says that, he's, he's really saying something larger about fashion. He's also saying larger about the circles he wades through and thinks mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. And that essentially, you know, if you live in fashion, you have the you have the luxury of not thinking about certain kinds of things. And so that may be seem that may seem simple or self-evident, but um, it's, it's very true. And so if, if you're someone who doesn't think about these things very often, then yeah, you're going to send, you know, models down the runway in, you know, white models in turbans the year or, or a couple years following, um, you know, sending models down in, fake dreadlocks or bantu knots or something like that, you're going to keep making this same um, gaffe over and over again um, until you start reading a book or something, or, you know, or you leave, uh, you leave this tradition that you are so enmeshed in that lets you be so ignorant for so long. And that keeps us sort of at an impasse because it's almost, you know, um, well, what do we have to say to that? I'm interested in the wider, um, taking a step back and looking at the the wider discussions in your book. And there seems to be a strong theoretical backdrop to your discussions, both in the way that each case study is structured in and in your overall interest in the economic conditions of the appropriators and the appropriated, respectively. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about how you've developed your style and skill for analysis um, and maybe who are some of the salient figures or inspirations that you've come across through the journey of your intellectual development? It's just so interesting to me because I, it's just very rare that you have a book that's so accessible in terms of its content, but is so rich in terms of explaining just deep systemic structures as well for an audience. And I just I just thought it was just a beautiful juxtaposition in in your book and so I'm just interested about your influences oh thank you um first of all yeah so the thing about doing a PhD in literature is that you get to read a lot you read all the time and you get to read a lot of really great brilliant thinkers who are also really great um amazing writers and I've had the you know privilege of being um trained by brilliant thinkers and brilliant writers um yeah, as for as for people whose writing I admire, um, whose brains I admire, I mean, I have to put in the plug for um, Homie Baba, like a amazing uh, cultural theorist, um, whose 
um, the location of culture was like incredibly formative and it remains incredibly formative to the ways that I think about race and culture and um, and coloniality and, and ambivalence. Eric Lott, of course, gets a mention. Mm-hmm. Um, I think his love and theft gets, uh, I, get, I think it gets invoked sometimes for the wrong reasons because people don't actually think about the, the, the ambivalence that's actually at the heart of the historical record that he's tracking in that book. But of course, you know, love and theft is, is, um, is iconic. Um, and also um, he has a more recent book, uh, Black Mirror, that is also really, really good and really fascinating as well. People like Hilton Alls, people like uh, Lauren Berlant, C.N. Nye, Sadia um, Hartman, Christina Sharp. I'm like looking around. My- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I'm writing like, notes right yeah, here. Closest yeah. to me. Um, but, you know, I won't like curl off. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of, you know, Doreen St. Felix, who's at The New Yorker, Gia Tolentino. Yeah, there's a lot of, you know, so many, so many people. I just like read, you know, read really good writers because the, you know, the best writers are also like the deepest thinkers too. And so all these people are always in my head when I'm compiling an archive and when I'm thinking about how to approach a certain subject. And so they've all been super formative in some way to how I approach uh, writing and thinking. Thank you so much for sharing. I'm when I do the edit, I'm making notes. I will um, I will look into all of those. So thank you so much. Um, and, it, and if my listeners um, want to follow your work, you get a lot of work published separate to this book. You, you, you publish a lot of articles online. Where can they find some of your work and perhaps how can they follow your work on social media? Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at prose before bros, P-R-O-S-E, the letter B, the number four, B-R-O-S, Prose Before Bros. Um, and yeah, all my other, the link to my website, all my other socials are like through through there. And yeah, I mean, when I write stuff, I'll, I tend to tweet it out obnoxiously. So yeah, that's probably the <laughs> keep up with me. <laughs> Wicked, awesome. Thank you so much. That was an absolute joy. Hey!